0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, everybody, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you're doing all right, wherever you happen to be. I have... A great episode for you today. Very interesting episode. I think you're gonna like it. I'm just speculating. Let's do some craft work. Today I am going to be doing another episode that gets into the business side of publishing. I'm gonna be joined once again by Carly Waters, returning champion, senior literary agent, and co-host of a podcast called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. And today we're gonna be talking about something that does not get talked about enough best seller lists because let's be honest every writer or most writers or the overwhelming majority of people who write dream of writing a bestseller a book that sells a shit ton of copies a book that appears on a bestseller list the new york times list in particular multiple lists the more lists the better Lists is a tough word to say, and I'm going to have to say it over and over again, (laughs) just realizing this. But the truth is that, and this is something that I need to point out, and this is something that Carly points out, these lists are not super well understood. And frankly, some of this is by design. There is some cultivated mystery here, some real mystery around how these bestseller lists actually function. And so we're going to talk about it. I'm going to ask Carly Waters, how do bestseller lists actually work? Who is it? Like, who is the wizard behind the curtain? Who picks the books that appear on these lists? And I should say that I don't think Carly even knows. Like, who is the wizard behind the curtain at the New York Times? I think that's a closely guarded secret. And what does it mean to make a bestseller list or multiple lists? What does that actually mean in real terms to a writer and to a writer's bottom line? All of that kind of stuff coming up. Carly Waters is a senior vice president and senior literary agent at PS Literary. She began her publishing career in London as an assistant at the Darley Anderson Literary TV and film agency, and she has been with PS Literary Agency up in Toronto since 2010 and during that time she has sold over 100 books. She represents award-winning and best-selling authors in the adult fiction and non-fiction categories as well as some select children's books. Her clients books have been uh, translated into 40 languages, optioned for TV and film, adapted into podcasts. And yes, they have been on every bestseller list from coast to coast. The New York Times, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail, you name it. So I'm very excited to welcome Carly Waters back onto the show to discuss this very relevant subject matter with me. It's one of those things that, like I said, a lot of writers think about it. Not a lot of writers talk about it, especially in public, so I figure we should talk about it in public on this show. Just get it out into the open. So that's what we're going to do. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Carly Waters.
1: Why why do we care about the bestseller list? So, Brad, I was gonna I was gonna throw this one back to you as well, because I'm curious about your relationship with the bestseller list. But I will start about authors that I hear speaking about them, clients that I work with, and how they, you know, how they feel about it. So basically, why do we care, right? So they every week, bestseller lists track the top selling books from the previous week. So we're kind of able to take a temperature of the industry, see what's going on, see what's the most popular. Um, generally they're known as a marker for you know, a number of things, whether it's actual quality of book, that's up for debate, but let's say quality, success, popularity, not always critical acclaim, um, but possibly again, depending on the book, really for for a lot of authors, it's a goal, it's a symbol. Again, it's more sometimes about what it means than it actually is. Um, But in general, it does help authors sell more copies and get more money in the future. So there's there's a lot of good things about it.
0: Yeah, you know, I th- I got to be honest. I don't usually look. I'm not like a weekly observer of the bestseller lists. And I think one of the reasons is that I feel like bestseller lists in fiction tend to be dominated by the kinds of books I don't typically read. It's a lot of like commercial fiction and romance and Colleen Hoover and whatever. Like I'm not going to I'm not denigrating. I'm just saying that like it's like the kind of books that I usually Root for never make it. It seems like maybe one. It'll be like an upmarket title that'll make it. Uh, you know, occasionally feels like there's a few every year, but literary fiction's tough.
1: I know it's a lot of repeat authors, and we can get into that later about why that is. But it's a lot of people who have established fan bases, and again, that's like what's pumping them onto the list. But our friend Rebecca Mackay, who, who we love on both of our podcasts, hit the hit the Times list um, this spring, which was great.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it's funny. Like I here's when I do look is when I get a feeling about a book. And I feel like it's going to be that book that makes it. And I think I probably looked after I had her on the show. I was sort of expecting, so I check to see if my intuition is correct. And it was. And in this in this case, it was. <laughs> so sometimes it's not though. And I want to get into like book scan as a tool that I guess what publishers and industry people and newspapers use at least partially, right? To you know evaluate. How many books are selling, and to formulate their lists?
1: Absolutely. So, BookScan is kind of what it's you know industry industry known as, but it is owned by the NPD Group, and they're a large company who does this type of thing, like Nielsen's ratings and that sort of thing. So, BookScan they've actually currently rebranded it just a couple of weeks ago, so you might also hear it be called Circana is another name that they're using for it. But BookScan is what we all know. Wait,
0: wait, wait, wait! BookScan is being called Circana.
1: C I R C A N A. They are they are trying to make Sakana happen. <laughs>
0: Why B- book scans better? It's like got a it's got book in it. Like, what does Circana even mean?
1: I have no idea. That that okay. we can that we can try to figure out the, which branding expert decided that uh, book scan should I'm be called Circana. I'm not Cercana. in favor.
0: <laughs> they should have consulted me first. I guess you know.
1: Yeah. So you might hear it called Circana now, but it's basically the data provider for the book publishing industry. It compiles point of sale data, so every time a book is sold at a store online, and we'll get into whether every sale is tracked a little bit later. But that's basically it. It's just like weekly tracking. It is, is put together on a weekly basis. Uh BookScan itself in terms of, you know, how it's funded, basically, if you want to participate in accessing this data, it costs industry members or teams, you know, obviously the publishers and certain agencies buy this, you know, for their teams, but it costs thousands of dollars a year. So I personally pay for my own account and it is $2,500 a year. And I think is I that, get it is it worth it? Um yes. I will say that it is not accurate, which is, you know, we'll get into that and, and why it's incredibly frustrating, but it's kind of the best we have, you know, and if it's the best we have, then I do feel like I need to opt in um, to kind of see what's going on because editors use it as a tool for, you know, comp titles and figuring out, you know, what's working in certain categories. So I feel like if editors are using that as data that they need to know internally in terms of decision making as an agent, I also kind of need to know. So I do subscribe to it.
0: Okay, but like the typical author is probably, that I know anyway, is probably not going to be throwing down $2,500 a year.
1: And I do not think they should. And I do not okay. think any author should be spending that money. I have a couple workarounds for anybody that does kind of want to know potentially what these numbers are. A couple things. Publishers Weekly, they print every week the top 10. And they actually put the, the numbers beside it. So and not at, none, none of the other bestseller lists do that. They don't actually print like the number of units sold, but Publishers Weekly does. So if you can get access to that top 10, at least you can see the top 10 and just be like, OK, that's the kind of number. That's what it takes to kind of be, you know, to be in the top 10. But I don't think anybody not working in the business should should pay for it. I don't think it's worth it.
0: And I, you know, I want to say on Amazon, I have some sort of book scan thing for my own book, right? Like doesn't Amazon provide authors some access to data on their own titles?
1: Yes, yes. And I think this is, you know, a great segue into everything with a grain of salt because, you know, every platform, every service, um, they're not going to be 100% of the market or, you know, be able to see, you know, the whole pie. But Amazon is really interesting. So book scan itself, they cover 85% of trade paper, uh, sorry, trade print books. So anything in the trade, you know, the, the general, you know, market as we know it, things that are sold in general bookstores, they cover 85% of print. So that's BookScan, right? Amazon is representative of 65% of the whole market. So the fact that you have access to that through it through your Amazon page, I, I think that's very valuable data as well. So again, we take it all with a grain of salt, but they have their different purposes.
0: Amazon does not own BookScan. No. Okay, Amazon, that's the NPD.
1: NPD, yes, NPD owns Bookscan. Amazon uses all of has all of their own tracking and data that I'm sure the back end could rival could rival Bookscan, but they use their own tracking services.
0: I was going to say they have their own rankings because yeah. they sell so many books. And that's I mean, like you said 65% of market share, so they would you know, that data is meaningful. Definitely. Okay, but Bookscan is only print books, so you're not getting ebook and audiobook sales. Tabulated
1: Correct. into that. Correct. Yes. So certain every every couple of years they might uh, bookscan has introduced a couple of new retailers or e-tailers. So they have tried to kind of keep up with the times. There was a time where they didn't have you know Walmart data or Costco data. You know what I mean? So like they they have been integrating over the years and trying to improve upon the amount of data that they actually receive. But they don't have they don't have access to everything. But they but they have a certain piece of the pie.
0: Okay. So. When it comes to bestseller lists, they're not all created equal. There's the New York Times list. There's a lot of different lists. And yet, I guess you would argue that they matter. I mean, they do matter. It shows us at the very least what's selling in a broad sense. Uh, But in a nuts and bolts business way, it obviously doesn't hurt an author to be a bestseller. (laughs) But it's, it's a very exclusive club. It's hard to make it onto the bestseller list. So there are plenty of wonderful authors who, whose work never shows up you know, in those mm-hmm. pages. So let's talk about why they matter. Let's also talk about how they're different the different lists.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes on the topic is from Laura B. McGrath. She is an academic who studies publishing and there are very few of them. Um, So Laura's great. She's a professor of English at Temple University. She teaches a course on the history of the bestseller. And what she says is she compares the New York Times list to the original recipe for Coca-Cola. We have a pretty good idea of what goes into it, but not the exact amount of each ingredient. And I think that's a really, that's a really good way of putting it because essentially, no one outside of the New York Times itself knows how its bestseller lists are calculated. And it's the same with Amazon rankings. I've sold a number of books to Amazon imprints. And even those editors can't tell me like how all these, you know, Amazon algorithms and and bestseller um, ratings are, are work. So I think it's really, I think it's really interesting to remember that they're all different because they're all gathering different types of data and their methodology is also different. So That's why if you open, you know, the New York Times, you're going to see a certain list of books on that bestseller list. And then you're going to look at IndieBound or, um, you know, Publishers Weekly bestseller list, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Again, all of these different um, newspapers are using different methodology. So I think that's very important to remember. They, the methodology that they use, uh, you know, you can find it on all of their websites if you're actually generally curious about how they act, you know, how they decide to make these decisions. But really they... So the New York Times is is an interesting one because they they say that they want to kind of reflect what they imagine their reader or their consumer and you know people who are New York Times type of people would want to see on the list. So they say it's their expressed goal is for the list to reflect what individual consumers are buying across the country instead of what's being bought in bulk by individuals or associated groups. Because we know that certain politicians, by their way, onto the list by buying these bulk sales. And, and that's always really interesting. So, um, so they try to guard against that. So they're not using, again, this hard data. They're saying, hey, let's manipulate this data essentially into what we think our readership wants to see on the list. So that's very interesting. The New York Times places a huge en- emphasis on independent bookstores. And geographical diversity. And so I we don't know if every week they track the same indie bookstores. It could be like one week they're tracking this, you know, this region, this region, this region. We don't know all that. But we know that they their goal is to achieve some geographic diversity. We do know that they do pay attention to Amazon and box stores like the Costco's and the Targets. And they do take books BookScan into consideration. But it's generally kind of known that they're going to put an emphasis on Indie bookstores, but again, we don't know which of those indie bookstores there is.
0: Why wouldn't they be transparent about their process and just tell us what they do? Like, why is the formula for Coke so like closely guarded?
1: So, I think it has to do with the fact that they don't want certain authors or publishers to say, "Hey, go to Changing Hands in Arizona. We're going to, you know, that's the store we, we track from." Therefore manipulate sales potentially or give authors opportunities or publishers opportunities to manipulate sales through selling more units unnaturally through that store. Does that make sense? So I think they're trying to avoid that.
0: Got it. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. You can buy your way on if you've got enough dough or if you've got like organizational muscle, you know, big groups of people or what is it, you know, um, super packs or you know all that kind of stuff they leverage all that stuff politicians do just as a as a prominent example um,
1: i don't know which famous musician it was and i couldn't recall even if you asked me but there was a famous musician whose manager went out and bought every copy like possibly available in the u.s and all of those copies just like lived in this person's basement so that this musician could make their way onto the bestseller list so there's definitely some manipulation going on you know if, if there are pockets deep enough
0: so but like it's an inexact science it could be wrong it is subjective too because the times is saying like we are putting together a list that we feel like is reflective of the interests of our readers Mm -hmm. so that's interesting i wonder about just like how that sausage gets made like they're back like the books editor is like meh this feels right. <laughs> we'll put that one at number seven. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, there's some of that. It's some of like choosing as opposed to just reading hard data.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's so incredibly frustrating, I think, from the author's perspective, even publishers or agents, right? Because you could know that your client or the book you worked on or the book you wrote sold enough copies to make it on the list and yet through somebody else's decision making they just like left you off the list that week and that could cut into again future earnings of yours or being able to put the words you know new york times bestseller or la times bestseller or washington post bestseller like on the cover of your book right and so the subjective nature of this has real downstream effects economically you know through you know, for author's careers, So that's the part that I think should be more infuriated. As you can see, I'm like, my blood pressure is rising. I'm like ready to go to battle for this stuff because I feel like it is infuriating to be at the mercy of these lists when there are real, real repercussions.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Well, one of the things I've noticed, I mean, I noticed this in my own career. I was, uh, for my debut novel, on the LA Times bestseller list for a week. And I was so green. Well, I was so green at that point that I woke up and was shocked to find out that this was the case. And I think I was dating my wife at the time. And I was like, I I think I made it. Like, it's over. Like, we you know, I thought it was just like. I thought it meant like my book was going to sell huge numbers. Yeah, That's yeah, how yeah, yeah. you know naive I was. And then you later learn, or at least I later heard secondhand, that the LA Times just like polls some local indie bookstores and gets some you know some basic numbers and builds their list that way. So it's like it's very reg- it's very local and very unscientific, really. Right? But I, mean, I it's,
1: love it's, that because it's like you're West Coast based. They're a West Coast paper. Like le- again, leaning into those geographical. I don't know. Like I think that matters because again, they what that's what they think that their LA Times readership wants is to see local authors on the list. So it's like I, that is what I love about the regionality of it in the in that emphasis because I don't know. I think that that you belong there. You know, again, you you made it. You did it. <laughs> I made it, and
0: I get to. This is the funny thing is that I get to call myself a best selling author for the rest of my life, and I've I've joked about this with other people who have gone. Uh, for example, on the New York Times list for one single week, and for the rest of their career on the front of their book, it's New York Times bestselling author. Like yeah. that counts, right? <laughs> Don't think for
1: a second that publisher's not going to print that on every single book and it's going to be used uh, yeah. in every press release. Because as you said, right, it could be that you sold, you know, 2,000 units that week or 6,000, 60,000, right? It's like just to be on the list is like of that week, you were the top in that week. And so it's all relative and very interesting, but it matters.
0: And what about what like the reason why so many titles kind of show up and then fall off?
1: Yes. So there's a few there's a few reasons. So with that kind of like instant New York Times bestseller thing that you'll see, right? It'll be all of a sudden like a book came out of nowhere, and you know it's it's on the it's on the list for the first week. So that is a lot of pre-orders. So pre-orders are what happens when, you know, maybe an author or, you know, the person writing the book through creator has a huge fan base. And so this author is proponing it on socials or maybe they have a podcast or other reasons to to mobilize and galvanize their audience and say, hey, I have a book coming out. Please pre-order it. And what you can do is anywhere, you know, that like an e-tailer site or even some, you know, indies can go into the store and ask to pre-order a book. Basically, you pay for the book in advance. And when that book comes out, whether it's weeks or months later, it just shows up on your doorstep or shows up on your Kindle on the day. And so these pre-orders are all banked and they bank and they land that first week of on sale. So that's how you see this, like, all of a sudden people are just like debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's not that they sold 30,000 units in seven days. It's that they sold 30,000 units in the months, weeks leading up to that seven days but it counts for that seven days and so sometimes that is enough to keep you up with some momentum right so then you pop up on the list and that's great now people are shopping from the list or people are like oh now now we're starting to get some attention brewing Uh, that could keep you on the list or it's like that was a bit of a blip and then it, it falls off because you know there's not enough momentum to keep going there's not publicity it could be that you know, the amount of copies that the publisher printed ran out. It's like we didn't have enough to fulfill the rest of the, you know, momentum in sales. And that's a distribution issue and a production issue. So there's a lot of reasons for this, these ebbs and flows. But yeah, you just, you have to hit it once to call yourself a bestseller.
0: And that's why authors are instructed and are often telling their friends and fans to please pre-order because pre-orders do really matter to how a book launches.
1: Yes, and I, I feel like there's a lot of fatigue around that because as industry professionals and authors, to have to keep kind of like beating the drum, being like, come on, come on, audience, come with me now. Like, let's order all these books and, you know, and, and have a wonderful time. I feel like that is exhausting, you know, for, for, for industry professionals. And it's unfair, you know, to say like, hey, let's put all the pressure on the creators. Let's put all this pressure on the authors to do all of this work. In, in advance where, you know, is it, do we need to place that much emphasis on it? Cause it's not that we, again, don't want to mobilize our, our fan bases. It's that, do we need to put that much of an emphasis on it? Because what happens is, if there are, you know, a spike in pre-orders that can tell the publisher, like, hey, let's go let's go back to press early and print some more copies. You know, let's put it put together another marketing campaign that's maybe, you know, going to target something we haven't targeted yet. Or let's put extra publicity mar- muscle behind something so that that spike in pre-orders is kind of like messaging and and, and kind of uh, has signs that it tells us of what to think about a book, but that's so unfair, right? Because there's so many wonderful books who maybe don't get these pre-order blips. And then does that mean that, you know, they're not able to get that extra muscle behind their books? Another thing that's that's unfair about our business.
0: Yeah, I got to say, I bristle a little bit, uh, like on behalf of myself as an author, but also on behalf of authors in general. It's such a pain in the ass to write a book and it's such labor over so many years There's so much failure embedded into it. It's like a grueling marathon of a process usually, unless you're one of these people, like one of your authors that we discussed last time who writes a book a month or whatever. Uh, But to have to do all of that hard work and to then have the responsibility as well to be drumming up 2,000 pre-sales and basically handle uh, a lot of the marketing effort, if not all of it, depending on where you're published. It's just a lot to expect of any human being.
1: I know, I know. It's There's so much on the, the shoulders of of the creators and of the authors, and it's really just a reality of creating content in the kind of internet generation, you know, like it's just assumed that you as a creator who's creating content, again, you're, you're going to be on the internet in some capacity, and therefore people are going to find you and, again, want to interact with you. And I think one of the things about publishing that's so interesting is it's one of the very few industries that has a direct relationship with his reader, because, right, books go from the publisher to the bookseller to... The fan base right and you as the author you're the one really that has the direct relationship with your fan base and so there, there's very few other industries where again they're so disconnected from what consumers actually you know want and so they're not and, and authors understand the nuances of like oh this is this imprint means this or this publisher means this right and the symbolism behind the industry but consumers actually don't care about imprints and publishers that that's meaningless to them and so there's this huge disconnect between all of these you know these players in the industry. So there's so much pressure on the author to cultivate these relationships with their, with their fans or followers or readers or whatever you want to call them, um, you know, the people that interact with their content and material because it's assumed that that is a metric of, you know, how many people are potentially interested in your book.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, I've noticed and I've had conversations with authors on this show. Uh, recently spoke with Emily St. John Mandel, whose uh, novel Station Eleven just exploded and sold, like what I want to say at this point, probably two million copies at least, or something like that. That sounds fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was trying to, whenever I talk to an author who's had that right, I always try to see if I can parse why it happened and what levers were being pulled behind the scenes to make that book such a success. And one of the things she said was that there was within I believe Penguin Random House there's some sort of in-house initiative called Title Wave have you heard of this but it's like an in-house thing where basically they look at their roster of books that's coming out and they pick a couple to really get behind like across the mm-hmm. entire company like all the you know all the different moving pieces kind of get behind it and push it to bookstores and talk it up and all that kind of stuff so obviously that would have an impact on how a book is rolled out. You would assume when they pick a book like that, that they're investing money in advertising and you know, all the different uh, elements of a book rollout. But sometimes books get that and they don't end up selling all that well. And other times books don't get that and they do sell really well because what, the word of mouth is just so extraordinary and readers get so excited. The, the question that I'm working towards is just whether or not you, you know, having worked as an agent for all of these years and observed these market forces and these lists, if you have a sense of how it happens.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because there's a couple of things early on there's a couple signs or signals that potentially a book might get a tidal wave type of approach um, in terms of what that might look like so number one being the size of the advance or how actively the publisher pursued it in order to buy it if they spend a lot of money they're going to and then invest a lot obviously to recoup that or there's like the sleeper hits right so there's you know there's a couple of things um but they are paying attention to these little like sleeper hits if you want to call it right like books maybe they didn't spend half a million dollars on but they're like hey this is picking up a lot of steam pre-orders are picking up you know different outlets are talking about it they're getting bunch of, you know, um, like five-star reviews or starred reviews, you know, in some of the trades, they're, they're really, they're seeing a lot of momentum and they will, you know, have that title-weight type of approach where we're going to double down on this, right? We're, we're trying to pay attention and, and notice that this is happening. Or there's the, we spent a lot of money on this book, therefore we need a big marketing campaign to recoup the investment that we spent on this and we're going to we're gonna watch, we're going to see this through. And so one or both of those types of books might make the bestseller list? Or there's the type of book that, has a modest launch. And then three years after publication, five years after publication, all of a sudden it's on the bestseller list later on. And then it's like, oh, you know, what is it about these books that pick up steam later or have a second life or get picked up in another medium, whether it's, you know, gets turned into a television show or movie or gets picked up on TikTok in terms of like that type of word of mouth. And so our industry is so interesting because we are part of the entertainment business. We are part of, um, you know, the... Content kind of consumption, you know, landscape that we live in. And so we can't predict these things and we don't know what's going to happen in a zeitgeisty type of way. We don't know what people are going to get excited about and publishers don't know what else is happening.
0: Well, I actually do know and I am playing the long game with my novel. It's going to be a bestseller, but just not until three years after (laughs) its publication. I want it to take its time finding its way to readers. And, you know, I just read online on the probably on Twitter, there was some author, and I'm blanking on who it is, who had that very scenario play out. It was like, the tweet was like, two years later, here I am, a New York Times bestseller. Like, don't believe that it can't happen. That kind of thing. One of those like inspirational Yes. You know, so it that's and, crazy and people though.
1: cling to that and retweet that a hundred thousand times because that's, that's the core belief that everybody wants to believe is that they're capable bestseller, that the book they wrote, even if it didn't hit the bestseller this time in three years from now, it can, right? It's like this idea that, again, I talked earlier about, it doesn't mean that a book is of quality or not because it's on the list, but everybody believes that they have created something of quality that will connect with people. And so there's this, always this hope and this drive that like being a bestseller matters.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's like, I'm trying to think of a corollary in a different medium and it seems like the literary bestseller that hits like three years after its pub date is sort of like the cult hit movie that does not do well on its theatrical run, but ends up becoming like one of the most streamed or televised movies. You know what I'm saying? Exactly, like a movie. Yeah. With, yeah. Like big Lebowski or, um, you know what the, you want to, I want to say I read that the number one most watched or most broadcast movie on cable television is Roadhouse, the Patrick (laughs) Swayze movie. But it's like that movie. Think about how many millions of views that movie has got i'm sure it didn't do any kind of theatrical business oh no
1: no no and it's we just never know i think that's just the magic of it the alchemy of it of our business and why we're so drawn to it it's like if we all knew how to print bestsellers every publisher would print bestsellers like we do not know how to do that um and the best we have is our taste and our gut and these intuitions and there is a bit of market sensibility and obviously we're trying to figure out some some data and some metrics but really it's up to consumers and there's so much that we don't have control over
0: yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, I, I, I think that an internal corporate publishing coordinated effort can help at least get it out of the gates. Mm-hmm. An author with a platform and a fan base like ready for it, that obviously can help. And then I think it's I think ultimately it's readers reading it, loving it, telling their friends about it. That's mm-hmm. the I think that is the strongest force but the only other thing i could say from an observational standpoint that i've noticed over the years is that when a book is taking off there is a kind of ubiquity to its presence in book media mm-hmm. like that's kind of some that's when i'll start to get a sense like everybody was just chatting about uh, rebecca Mackay's novel mm-hmm. as just as the the go-to example it seemed like every website I went to, there was a piece about it. Yeah. And that's when I can start to detect like a genuine momentum that tends to show up uh or that tends to directly relate to sales.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And everybody wants a piece of that, right? So then you'll see the listicles and the articles, you know, trying to revolve around that inevitability that like this book is something to pay attention to. So those are, yeah, that's a good signpost.
0: Yeah. They want, they want the traffic. Mm-hmm. That's something else I took me forever to really, oh yeah, it's good to like, Time podcast episodes with book launches, especially when there's a lot of excitement. Like it only took me like 11 years to figure (laughs) it out. (laughs) Uh, But I got there eventually, you know. So let's go over just like some of the different lists. I Mm -hmm. think everybody obviously knows the New York Times list, the major papers have their lists. But just for people listening who might not be fully aware of all the different lists that are out there, um, let's break down some of the bigger ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So our New York Times. It goes live every Wednesday night, but it's printed in the weekend paper. So anybody in the industry is kind of like looking for it on Wednesday night, you might see some announcements on Twitter, you know, that sort of thing. But really, it's, it's going in the paper or uh, Sundays, actually, sorry, Sundays is when I think the book, the book it, um, issue comes out. So that's kind of what you're going to pay attention to there. Uh, Publishers Weekly, it goes in the print issues on Saturdays. And as I mentioned before, the top 10 is always printed, and it's always printed with the units beside it so you'll get to see like how many units it sold the units the unit number that it prints beside it is the book scan number so that top 10 is essentially like top 10 from book scan um usually organized by adult fiction or adult nonfiction. like they're going to weed out some of the things like guinness book of world records that sort of thing but also remember book scan is not 100 percent of the market so we always want to remember that we're always taking things with a grain of salt
0: but but we should say like it's not the whole thing it's only 85 percent or whatever of, of print but the publisher's weekly list, if you want a list that is derived from just raw data. There's no subjectivity is what Correct. I'm saying. The only thing at. they
1: take out is Guinness Book of World Records, I think, and like a couple of those type of reference books. That's the only thing that they will remove.
0: Okay. Okay. So uh. continue.
1: Yes. Um, so Washington Post, uh, they have a bestseller list. It uh, remember that Bezos owns Washington Post, so you're going to see some potentially Amazon heavier titles on there, which you know not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just information to know. Um, Wall Street Journal, they do include eBooks, but not audio, so they're going to have a different list than everybody else as well, which is also interesting. IndieBound bestseller list. This is compiled of 550 indie bookstores across the nation. If there's anything that's closest to word of mouth or anything that's closest to potentially what you're going to see in the New York Times list, it's going to be indie bound again, because we know how much um, the Times pulls from that. Amazon. So there's a couple of things. Amazon has their little like orange banners, which everybody's probably seen at the top. And then they have their weekly charts. So those are two different things as i said before, they have 65% of the market share. So it is very interesting in terms of what is happening on Amazon. Um, they have, again, the charts, they have the orange banner. Generally, it's, it's anecdotally known that you need about 15 or more three and a half star reviews to kind of tr- be triggered by their algorithm, for their algorithm to kind of like pick up some awareness um, and kind of do some work for you potentially. So that's all good information to have as well.
0: So wait, wait, let's just stop that. Yeah. You, you said you have to have 15 15- ratings and reviews on Amazon in order for your book to start being recommended perhaps to people based on algorithmic stuff
1: yeah that that is the latest information that I have so it's 15 or more within a certain period of time maybe that's you know I'm not sure what that window looks like, but as soon as it's really velocity and momentum, right? We're, we're They're trying to pick up, okay, there's some momentum going on here. So if they're going to see that number of reviews and those number of ratings, um, people engaging with the content, really wanting to go there, you know, rate and review, put the effort in, that's showing them something. So that then they'll start to kind of potentially, you know, select you as like, if you liked this, then you'll like that, right? And pick up through that algorithm, the SEO.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's Amazon.
1: Yes. Um, And then we have a regional list. We talked a little bit about them, our LA Times, our Seattle Times, that sort of thing. They're going to have a more of a regional emphasis, which I said, which is really nice, right? You want to see local authors on your local lists. um, And that's a great way to kind of, again, put that personal connection um, into things. And then we have a big hole. We have our USA Today bestseller list. It used to exist up until approximately November of 2022, and then all of a sudden, it very quietly disappeared, and that is because they laid off the one person that ran the bestseller list over there. They laid off this one person. There was one person that we just found. Oh, there's one person running this um, for all these years. They laid them off, at, never replaced them, and haven't picked it up. So if you go to where the USA Today list used to live on on their on their website, it's the last week they have. I believe it's a week in November, and so. Nobody seems to be that upset about it, except for me. But I've been tweeting about it and posting about it, and I'm so frustrated about this.
0: I think they should make either you or me the new, you know, per- person in charge of the USA Today bestseller list, so that uh, and, and mine. If I ever got that role, I would just want to do it completely subjectively, no hard data at all, just me picking. <laughs> What I feel, <laughs> there Brad's should be a list. list. <laughs> that's right. There should be a list that is just like you know makes no secret of the fact that it is 100 subjective. That way, I could choose. But do you feel like that's a big loss? I mean, USA Today. That's a that's a widely read. I think it used to be anyway. Widely read and obviously widely distributed national paper. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's a couple of reasons why I think this is a major loss. This is one of the bestseller lists that used to give pretty hard data. So they would just. And, and they went up to 150 actually. So it was it was 150 if you went on the website. They used to have it in a PDF that you could download and obviously print it in the paper, but it was 150 and it was hard data. They weren't taking out Guinness Book of World Records or the latest, you know, Dog Man graphic novel. They were it was all in there, 150. So it gave everybody a fighting chance. You know, if you were moving enough units in a week, you could really you could hit a list, which was which was great for so many reasons. And you could be anywhere from, again, one to 150 and be on the list. So it was to me, it was just a great equalizer.
0: Do you have a favorite list? I mean, New York Times has sort of got the most shine to it, I guess, at least in literary circles. But is there one that you, as an industry professional, look to with the most reverence or respect or interest?
1: That's that's an excellent question. I think um, I I enjoy all the lists for different reasons, I guess because my clients have been on all of these lists and you know, I can see how they've all played out in different ways. I think being on the New York Times list for – A significant amount of time is an incredible coup. You know, somebody that's been on the times list for weeks, months, years, like that is an incredible career accomplishment that is actually mind blowing to be like, I've sold 10 20, 30,000 units a week, like week on week. Anyway, that to me, that's just an absolutely incredible thing to witness to be like that. You know, that's a real cool. That person that's like that's retirement money kind of, you know, we'll we'll get to like the money part of it later and what it all means financially. But like that's real money, right? When you're when you're moving that many units. So I think that is incredible. Indie bound. I have a soft spot for obviously independent bookstores such a love and heartbeat of the industry and to know what they care about in any given, any given week, um, what they're pushing, what they're hand selling, what, you know, what they feel passionate about incredible, you know, th- those things really, those things really matter. And, and USA Today, as I said, I thought it was such a, a good democratic list of like, let's just, you know, see what happens in any given, any given week. Also very, a bit more middle America, you know, just like, here's what the general population is reading. It's not, you know, quote unquote, coastal elite type of thing, right? It's like, this is what pe- real people are reading. And I, and I really love that about it.
0: And so for authors or prospective authors who might be listening, who are curious about a sense of numbers, and forgive me if you've already said this, but how many books do you have to move in general to make the New York Times list in a week? Is it 2,000 to 5,000 or what is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it it depends on which of the lists it is um, and time of year and and a number of other factors. So generally for the fiction list, it goes from numbers 1 to 15 is what they print, um, I believe, in the papers. To kind of get onto the bottom of the list, potentially five to 7,000 probably could get you on the list to be towards the top of the list. You're more moving upwards of 15,000.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of books in a week.
1: So a lot of books in a week.
0: It really is. I mean, but then again, like, I think some people who might work in other industries might look at that number and be like, really, that's it. Cause I feel like <laughs> that's all I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and so movie people and television people are always using ratings as yes. a, you know, the key metric. And even like an, even like a outlier show picks up way more viewers than 15,000, you know, mm-hmm. usually anyway. Um, so I think it can seem small, but to book people who know, 15,000 copies in a week is a ton of sales.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of an unfathomable amount in the book business because you're just like, you know, you go to a book signing and you, all you can see is like 30 people or 50 people. It's like across the nation, that many people could come across your book, stumble across it in a, a Target, a Walmart, a Costco, an indie bookstore. You know, it's like that's a lot of units.
0: And it's media coverage, platform, and you know, establish fan base if there is one, maybe some advertising. Does the cover of a book, you don't think the cover of a book is ever pivotal in terms of its sales?
1: Yes and no. I mean, ultimately, no, I don't because, you know, how could we, you know, it's art, right? Covers are art. So I don't, I think, I think of them as a creative marketing tool for sure. But yes, in the sense that, because as we said, right, our 65% of the market is our Amazon. Because so many books are sold based on a thumbnail, you know, this big, I think a lot about what a book looks like when the cover's this big versus when it's in my hand. When I'm consulting with my clients about like, you know, we got a cover from a publisher. What do we like about this? What are we thinking about this? I, I, I when, you know, I make it small, small, small. I look at it this big. I look at it this big. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm zooming out. I'm zooming in. I'm zooming out. I'm zooming. In. I'm really thinking about when somebody stumbles across this digitally, how are they going to feel about it? Is it clear? Is the title clear? Is the name clear? Is the iconography clear? Right. So I, I, in that sense, I do think it matters.
0: That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because you're so, you're like the digital new, like, like new and improved literary agent (laughs) who's like super online and good at this stuff and embraces this stuff to be considering the effect of a book jacket, as a digital entity rather than, I mean, the physical matters as well, but most people at least as their entree to a book are going to be observing it as a thumbnail.
1: Exactly. Right. So their first, their first interaction with it as as a thumbnail, again, whether it's requesting it from the library, seeking it out, being like, oh, discoverability. I like that. I I might go purchase it at a bookstore, but my first discoverability of it is going to be, you know, teeny tiny.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about money and sales. Obviously money is a reason why an author would want to be on the list. You want to sell books, you want to make a living, but like, what are some other reasons why authors want to hit a bestseller list and why it's good for them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think the list is pretty long, you know, ultimately, um, so when somebody does hit a list, it can be used like a shopping list, you know, especially around Mother's Day or Father's Day or the December holidays or somebody's birthday, you know, if they're a book lover, you might think, oh, I'm just going to go on the best side of the list, like see what's popular right now, you know, grab them that title. So that's That's something. Um, There's publicity kind of around the idea that you appear every week, you know, in print or online, they're going to see your name, potentially more reviews, speaking engagements, national awareness, right? There's this like coming out party of like, here they are on a national scale. We talked about this, but like, once you hit the list one time, you get to call yourself a bestseller forever, (laughs) printed on every, you know, every book, you know, it's, it's funny, because sometimes if a book is a bestseller internationally, but not domestically, you might see on the cover like international bestseller, but that might mean like it's a bestseller in Germany. So there's like, code, you know, there's codes and, you know, different words that we use to kind of express those those bestsellerisms. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it can cross borders as well. You know, I think authors really want to hit it because there's a lot of feelings around it, right? And that's kind of why I started this 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 episode about like, our, talking about our, you know, asking about your feelings around it, right? Because there's this idea where hitting the list does it mean power, right? Or some sense of presumed respect or legitimacy, right? Is this imagined? Is it real, right? Depending on the list and how we feel about them. So I always kind of, whenever I talk about bestseller lists, I always like to help authors think about unpacking their own relationship to their idea of success or money or whatever that is. Cause it's something, it's always about something else, but there's always this, this sense of, of, yes, I want to hit a bestseller list, but, but why? Right. And it's all these reasons. And if you stay on the bestseller list for a long time, yeah, you can, you can make some real money. Like if a book is on the bestseller list for a long time, that's like buy a house money, right? Like that's a lot, you know, you can make a lot of money. Right. So that, that's significant. It's also used as leverage for your next book deal. So if you're like, hey, their last book sold X number of copies, you know, made you this amount of money, like for their next deal, they're going to want this amount of money. So it's a negotiation tactic and can obviously help you for your next project as well.
0: Okay. So how true is it in your experience as an agent interacting with editors for an editor when evaluating a manuscript to simply look at book scan numbers see how much or how little an author has sold previously and to make a decision based solely or almost entirely on the basis of that data. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, do they? I feel like that can happen if you're a mid-list author or even lower down the rung in terms of your sales. It, it's hard. They just look at your numbers and go, no, next, we'll yeah. take somebody who's sold more copies. Or,
1: Yeah, I wish that I could say that it wasn't true, but I can confirm that suspicion of yours obviously if an author falls in love with a the manuscript there, there, there's no way really though of separating their feelings about that manuscript from the data because they have to make business decisions on, on behalf of their company about the books that they that they sign they might say something to the effect of you know i didn't love the book enough to overcome the numbers that might be some some coded language they might use
0: yeah, I know. That that sounds like something they would say. <laughs> right. And like you've gotten pretty good, I bet, at reading through. Like there's certain code coded language that you hear over and over again. Absolutely.
1: Right? And I send it out too, so we're all totally we're all totally um victims of it.
0: Well, and I should say in defense of editors and agents, that there are only so many different ways to decline or to say the same thing. So I would imagine you have a file of just forms that you copy and then paste and then maybe Personalize a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise, And, I, but, and
1: that's some of the things I've internalized in the sense of like another agent might feel differently. Like I always say that because I genuinely think that, like just because something's not for me, it doesn't mean it's not for somebody else. So I always say another agency, you know, another agent might feel differently. That's yeah. one of mine.
0: <laughs> so you've talked a couple of times already about timing in terms of the lists and becoming a bestseller and how it might be more difficult at certain times of year you have to sell more copies to make it. But like, what are some of the publishing seasons and how does that impact bestseller lists?
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things I like to draw everybody's attention to is kind of that fall season. So there's generally the time between September and December that is just generally competitive for space on the bookshelves. And there's a few reasons for it. Books usually aren't published in December. Books are generally published in that like September, October, maybe early November space because there's a reason for that. Generally, all publishers have contracts with the large um, bookstores are, are kind of the box stores in which they only have to carry books for a certain window of time. And for with some of them, it's actually some of them are down to now six weeks. And if they don't sell through those number of units and order more, like at that six week term, they're actually allowed to ship all those books back. And that's called returns. So anybody in publishing knows about returns. So that window. So imagine you have basically six weeks for bookstores to be moving through these copies for people to discover you in the store. You know, you have these six weeks. And so that's, again, leading up to the December holidays, you want to be kind of in the stores at that time, not be shipped, getting shipped back at that time. Like you want your momentum to be the highest during that, during that season. There's, it's also a bit competitive for, you know, awards. um, But generally most of the book buying done in the entire year is through that, through that December kind of holiday season time period. So there's, there's a lot of book selling that's happening at that time.
0: And if you're an author and your publisher is putting your book out in the fall, is that a good sign? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it, if you're an author, should you be evaluating the timing of a book release to help use that information to gauge how enthusiastic they are about you and how big of a believer they are?
1: That's a really good question. But it has to be paired with marketing because you can't just be put out when everybody's being put out in a very busy, busy, busy season and then have no support and no discoverability at that time. So sometimes people say they don't want to debut a book in the fall because it's so competitive. Then do you really want to be up against Margaret Atwood? Right. Like that's tough. You know, people are going to make a book decision that month, hardcover prices are going up, you know, are you going to spend 40, if somebody's going to go out and spend $40 on a book that month, are they going to buy Margaret Atwood? Are they going to buy you? You know what I mean? So like that level of competition is so fierce. So a lot of people don't debut authors um, in the fall, unless they're going to, again, have a lot of marketing publicity efforts to back it up and support it. Generally, authors are more debuted through you know, there's the January through March kind of like you know, New Year, New You, debut in emerging fiction kind of space, or spring and summer if it's more commercial, potentially more travel friendly, people grabbing books in the holiday, uh, you know, for holidays, the type of books that you might see in an airport, like those type of books, you might see them through the spring and summer season.
0: Okay, and yeah, I'm trying to think. It doesn't, but it's not an exact science. You see, I, I guess I, I think to the kinds of books that get sent to me, feels like they're published. At all times of year, maybe there are some tendencies, but it's entirely possible for a super dark memoir to be published in July. That does happen. Absolutely, because then they
1: might think, hey, we're going to circumvent the system, drop a dark memoir in July when all of the beach reads are coming out. Therefore, any dark readers would then want our book coming out in July. Do you know what I mean? So there's always like a method to the madness.
0: (laughs) And is that a method that you try to impact as an agent like will, you, like, will you have any sway or be able to negotiate with a publisher around when the book will be released?
1: Generally not. A lot of it is scheduling, as boring as it sounds, right? It's like an author, they're going to deliver the edits in this kind of month and then approximately a year from now, whatever slot makes the most sense for them. I most care kind of internally if there's competition. So I wouldn't want a book that like with the same imprint that might potentially, you um, you know, eat some of the sales of, of my clients kind of coming out in the same two week span. That's the type of stuff that I've raised my voice about that before. Because again, I wouldn't want my author to suffer, you know, through some internal competition or publicists being assigned both of those titles. And then publicists have to be like, hey, like how, you know, how would we decide what book to push? That kind of thing. That's the kind of stuff I care about. But otherwise, you know, there's really a case for everything as long as the publisher is excited about it and, and puts the effort in.
0: And with respect to authors who are out there stumping for their for their work it's important to note that when you're doing events around a book launch that you want to if you can sell books through uh, like a book scan like seller like a, so that the books can get logged as official sales rather rather than selling them out of a box of your own copies or something right
1: yes yes that is something to remember so if you're going to have an event potentially at a non bookstore location and you're thinking of bringing a bookseller in for the event something like that it's always nice to just see like if they do report to bookscan again because if you're going to move numbers why not move them through something that's a tracking service
0: and then what about print run because you know if we're talking about numbers and we're talking about needing what five to 20,000 copies to move to get onto the New York times list. There are so many books published, especially on small presses that don't have a print run anywhere near those numbers. It might be a thousand copies that are printed or, you know, maybe five at the top, it seems like it's the top end for small presses. So I guess like as an author, when your publisher tells you what the initial print run is going to be, that might be an indicator of their confidence.
1: It's not confidence so much as it's, real, it's realism, you know? It's kind of like in, in order for books to sell that many copies, there has to be enough copies kind of floating around, right? Um, and depending on the genre, some genres can sell up to 75% in E!, more digital audio. So again, put, there's the potential there to hit a, a bestseller list, that's the combined E list which the, which the New York Times has. So there's some potential there, but yeah, there has to kind of be enough books to to meet demand um to you know move enough units and and again, the pre-orders obviously help because that's signaling like hey, we need to print enough books to to meet the demand of this. So there is a bit of a signaling that happens there, but I think one important thing to remember is that publishers publisher's metric of success is more based around the advance and the earn out and the minutiae of your particular book, because they're thinking, Oh, if we spent X number of thousands of dollars on your book, really they're trying to recoup that advance. And and so there is competition. They're thinking like, Oh, you know, what else is going on in the industry? But in terms of the actual, accounting, right? Like the accounting of your book, right? To be a success for them is is really getting close to earning out your advance. Anecdotally, it's kind of known that once you hit about 50% of your advance, the publisher is making money, you know? So, you know, that's kind of the window to be like, am I a success? You know, have you earned out approximately half of your advance or all of your advance? Then yes.
0: Really? Okay. So half of your advance is the me- like the general benchmark for when you Carly's think-
1: Carly's anecdotal evidence suggests- Yes. <laughs>
0: that it's starting to what? I'm trying to think like that means they're starting to get into the black- That's it. Yep. Okay. Yep. And what about, you know, this issue of trying to launch a book? We talked about pre-sales and how they can be instrumental in a book coming out of the gate strongly and possibly hitting a list. Do you, especially as somebody who is so good at being online and doing social media and creating content, have any insight into best practices for how authors successfully bank pre-sales because it's not easy to get people to do stuff because every i feel like just speaking personally i had a book come out and i'm on this show saying hey guys pre-order and like a lot of people did and i'm grateful uh but I always feel a little bit bad asking anything because we get so many of those messages every day. It feels like you're just kind of overwhelmed with them.
1: I know. Yeah, yeah, it's and this is why again I feel bad that like the industry puts this emphasis on on authors being able to be these salespeople, right? But a lot of it is just a lot of authenticity, you know, being honest, being like, "Hey guys, doing that thing again," where I got asked for the pre-orders. My publisher told me to, or like my agent said, like it's time to do the pre-order. You know, it's like bringing a little bit of humor and self-awareness always kind of generally helps. A lot of things is is mostly just that consumers don't understand, right? Like why why do authors keep talking about pre-orders, right? Like they just don't understand, and so. You know, there's there's a few things um that I usually tell my clients to do. One thing is always to let your alum, let your alumni magazine know or your alumni association know that you have a book coming out. Alumni associations love to talk about smart things that their you know, their their former students have done. They love that. You know, and there's just other things like Being your own vehicle, such as like you having this podcast, like I think that's really smart and very intelligent way of being like I'm creating this little platform and building this community and and this community is going to show up for you and and that type of thing. I I think that's great. That's all that we can really ask of anybody because a lot of other things take away from the writing you know, and really it's like in order to write a really great book, it's not about asking for pre-orders. It's about writing a really great book. And so I'm a big believer of letting the professionals do the professional stuff and letting the writers write. But again, if you want to talk about pre-orders, I think just being humble and humorous about it is, you know, having a newsletter, having a podcast, alumni associations, you know, just try to be engaged with the process as, most, as much as you can, but just know so much is out of your control. And, and, and that's kind of a hard thing to understand.
0: So for the person listening right now who's published 10 books and has never made a list and is feeling sad right now, let's go over reasons why it's not the huge deal. Like, what? Why does it not matter that you hit a list as an author?
1: Yeah, and this is some of my favorite things to talk about because it's so arbitrary and meaningless. That's like somebody at the New York Times decides this is what they're going to print, right? Like it's so silly, right? So ultimately it does not define your self-worth as a writer and as a creator and as an artist and a human being. Like it just, it doesn't because the people who make the list will tell you that again, it's nice, but it's arbitrary. Um, It has nothing to do with being able to have a long career. Like I just talked about how publishers will see you as a success if you're starting to earn out that advance and and kind of like that type of metric of, of success of, of selling enough units to, you know, make the numbers work on your spreadsheet, that type of thing. Like that's how you have a really long career. You just, you just keep going. Cause if you gave up, if you didn't hit a list, it's like, you're not hurting anybody other than yourself and, and future readers again, that, that are missing out on the great art that you're going to create, like that type of thing. It doesn't mean that you don't have a strong following or engaged readership. It's just, again, that some Fan bases don't understand the importance of those galvanized velocity of sales that is kind of needed to hit the list, um, and they they just don't understand. They might be they might be more slow and steady, and and that's okay as well. It's just again velocity is what gets you gets you on the list sometimes. And and the most important thing is again most writers don't end up on the list. Like there are only fifteen spots, you know, on the hardcover list every week. That's it, fifteen spots. Think about you know how many books are published.
0: Well, and of those fifteen spots there like I was saying earlier, is usually one or two literary fiction titles. So if you're writing literary fiction, you're essentially fighting for two, one or two seats at the table.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like John Grisham, one, two, three, Colleen Hoover, three, four, five, you know, Rebecca Mackay, you know, and, and a, a debut and, and again, all these repeat authors, that's it.
0: That's it. That's it. Yeah. So let's end by talking about getting rich. We've already talked a little bit about this, but that's really what everybody wants, right? They just want to get rich and have like, fuck you money and not have to think about money anymore as Mm -hmm. the, you know, as the saying goes. But you mentioned earlier, it was like 50% of your advance, you're starting to tip into the black. And maybe you touched a little bit on when authors start to see real money. Obviously being on the list for 47 consecutive weeks is going to help your cause. But like what numbers... Are there benchmark numbers where things start to get lucrative?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because so much of it actually depends on how much the publisher paid you because there's this thing called the advance, right? And you earn out the advance and then you start to see royalties after that. So you could be on the bestseller list and actually not make any more money because your advance was so large that those, those units are kind of towards earning out the advance that they initially paid you. So if you were paid in advance, that is more in the, you know, 20 to hundred thousand range. Right. And then you're on the bestseller list week after week after week. Yeah. You're going to start to see twice yearly royalty checks and those might have six figures. They might have seven figures, you know, like it's possible. That's the amazing thing is that it's possible. Right. And I think that's, what's so exciting to be like, you could, you could either make zero money or you could be a millionaire. Who knows?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a world of possibilities. Uh, is there anything that we have not touched on that you want to touch on? With regard to bestseller I feel like we've covered most of the big stuff, but if there's anything that I have forgotten or that you would like to add.
1: No, no, I think, I think we've kind of, we've covered most of the things. I'm just looking back through my stats. Hold on. Um. One, one statistic that I thought was pretty interesting is that, um, so there was a 2004 study um, by an economics professor named Alan Sorensen, and he said appearing on the New York Times bestseller list increased debut authors' sales by 57%. And on average, it cre- uh, increased sales by uh, 13 or 14%. So like there, there is a hit, obviously like a, you know, a a boost that you're going to get from being on a bestseller list, but, but is it the be all end all? Absolutely not. Cause the only thing that, that says you're a writer is really just that you keep writing. And so those are the most important things to me is that you guys take all of this with a grain of salt. You take the Amazon numbers with a grain of salt. You take the New York times numbers with a grain of salt. You join me in my effort to bring back the USA today bestseller list. But, (laughs) but other than that, we just keep writing your great books guys.
0: Okay. Well, Carly, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me on the failing app called Twitter, at Carly Waters. (laughs) But more frequently on Instagram, again, at Carly Waters.
0: And you're also a podcast host yourself.
1: We do. We have a podcast called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We have episodes that drop every Thursday. So you can check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: All right. Well, this has been illuminating. And I appreciate the time. And hopefully I will talk to you again before too long. Thank you, Brad. All right, everybody, there we go. That's the program. That was my conversation with Carly Waters, senior literary agent at PS Literary. Follow her on social media. She is very much on social media in a way that most literary agents are not on social media. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Carly Waters. Her feeds are filled with all kinds of useful information. And also don't forget to listen to her podcast podcast. It's called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed your time today, if you had a good experience and you want to support the work that I do here on The Other People Show, please visit patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot ncom slash otherpplpod. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this show and help me keep making it. If you want to get an Other People t-shirt, it's almost summer t-shirt season. It's t shirt time. The Other People t shirts are soft. They fit well. They wash well. You'll like them. Get an Other People t shirt at OtherPPL.com. Sign up for the free email newsletter that I do once a week over at OtherPPL.com or BradListy.com. You can hear from me in your inbox once a week. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is. Rate it, review it if you can. It helps new listeners find the show. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Watch my conversation with Carly Waters on YouTube, the Other People YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button. If you have feedback for me and you want to write me an email, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out, my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's almost one year old. Help it celebrate its one year birthday by... Getting yourself a copy in trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Once again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Dave Eggers, making his first appearance on the Other People podcast. He has a new novel for young readers coming out called The Eyes and the Impossible. So I'm very excited to talk with Dave Eggers and to share that one with you soon. So stay tuned.